Okay, everyone, welcome, welcome to our sixth regular show on Crypto Voices, talking about crypto economics and liberty. My name is Matthew Majinskis, your host, joined here by my co-host, Fernando Ulrich. Fernando, what's going on, my friend? Hello, Matthew. How are you, man? Doing fine. Can't complain. Nothing uh, too big, I think, in the last uh, week in the crypto space, you know, just some, just some subtle news. No big, no big changes, right? Yeah, just the all the scaling updates we have right now on the roadmap, and with the August first date approaching, I think we have some drama <laughs> to, to to cover here. <laughs> it it was sarcasm to be to be sure. I was uh, <laughs> so certainly uh, never a dull moment in this space. If you're following <laughs> never. On. Twitter or anywhere else. But um, anyway, so as we promised last week, we're going to continue to delve into uh, the scaling debate, the on-chain versus off-chain conversation. Um, The key factors here, just to remind everyone, they are the one megabyte block size limit, transaction malleability, network security, transaction throughput, and the risk of centralization all rolled up into one. Lots of issues. Uh, Again, we have, uh, we have not on purpose addressed this before, neither in our, our, our narrations, our articles, our, our ongoing audiobook on Crypto Voices, nor on our regular show. Uh, but we are going to do it uh, finally this, uh, these, these, uh, last week and these next few weeks. There's just no way around it. We have some very important dates coming up, so we figured we would give you our take, uh, lay it out for you, give you the lay of the land, um, and the like. And as well... Before we start, uh, I would like uh, each of us to sort of uh, convey our positions on what's going on here. I think it will help. Uh, it will help the listener just uh, see see where we're coming from. Again, we're just two guys. We are interested uh, certainly in economics and uh, in in crypto in general. But uh, I think you'll be able to see that we'll agree on a lot, but also disagree on a lot, which so should be interesting. So, first of all, my position on uh, this whole. Um, debate. I just want to make it clear for everyone as we go into this. I absolutely see massive, massive value for Bitcoin, both on-chain and off-chain. So if we're talking, if Bitcoin is, is digital cash, if Bitcoin is, uh, uh, offers some form of transacting, servicing on its blockchain and off its blockchain, I think that there's absolutely massive value both on and off-chain for Bitcoin. I do not have an opinion on the best way to get there, uh, generally, as I as I try to do uh, in in most uh, most cases, both on crypto and and outside of crypto and the traditional markets, I think we should let the market decide. And about my position, I do want to uh, give a quick shout out to one Conrad Graf. He's an economist. He lives in Germany. Uh, he writes beautifully about Bitcoin. Um, we've published him quite a bit before on the. Uh, on the audio, uh, on the narrations, on the uh, you know evolving audiobook we have on crypto voices. But uh, today, well, we're recording this on uh, Monday, July third. We have, for the first time, as I mentioned, uh, started to address the block size debate, and he really changed my mind, or not really necessarily changed my mind, but he opened my view to kind of a third way, an economic way, about a year ago when he wrote. Uh, a piece. Uh, it was an interview with Evan Fagart uh, in May of 2016. So we published that today. You know, just the audio version, so you can listen to it at your leisure. But but he 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 pinpoints, and I will give him uh, full credit for this because he he really opened my eyes to it. He he just points to let's observe the economic issues that surround the 
one megabyte block size limit itself. You know, a lot of people say block size, they say block size debate, they say, you know, what's the appropriate Bitcoin block size on chain? You know, he, he would say, I'm pretty sure, and I would, I'll just speak for myself here, you know, I'm not interested in whether Bitcoin has a one megabyte block or a half a megabyte block or 10 megabyte blocks or a gigabyte block um, as far as the size. I do think that there are some direct impacts on the blockchain uh, for miners, for the economy, and how off-chain scaling will be affected simply because there is uh, a limit. So that's my uh, position. Um, and generally, I'm very curious to see what's going to happen. And, uh, and we'll see. So Fernando, what, what's your take on that? And uh, if you want to expound upon that in other areas, feel free. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I mean, Conrad, Conrad's writings are just phenomenal. And he was actually the one that opened my eyes to Bitcoin itself back in 2013, when I was first reading about it and trying to understand what it meant. It was actually Conrad that really gave me the red pill to understand finally what this revolutionary technology meant for the world. Now, regarding the block size, and the block size debate or the block size limit, I think he has added a lot to this debate because he certainly brought to the table a, a perspective from an economist. And this is something we have with, I think it's really missing to have a, the economic repercussions of having a limit or removing a limit or all the, the implications that this involves. So Conrad has certainly done a great job in this respect. I, for one, tend to, to agree with him. So, and I've read Conrad's interview last year on this topic, on the block size limit topic. And I, th and I think he brought some very interesting arguments. And some, some of them that people, even from, from both sides of the debate, let's say the big blockers and the small blockers, and something that he reminded us that the block size limit was first introduced by Satoshi back in 2010 as a spam, spam prevention mechanism, not something to limit economically the block size or let's say something to influence the fee market or the transaction inclusion service market as correct has termed the what the, the fee market the is. fee market yeah. yeah i think it's actually a better description of of the of what we're talking about yeah he so, points out a lot of interesting economic stuff and that's one of them it's uh you know just like we have an oil market or a gold market you know we really should we should term it what the product is that's being offered and it's not it's not transaction fees, it's, it's transaction inclusion services. So that was, it was a great point. Exactly. So it's, it's important to have this in mind whenever we are addressing the, the, the issue of removing or not, or increasing this limit, or, or even having a limit at all. This is also something that is up for debates. So I tend to agree mostly with what Conrad has written in this, in this interview. But I do have some principles, and when we tackle the, the issue and we have to analyze, should we raise, by how much, when, and then my, I have some principles which are, for instance, soft forks should be preferred over hard forks, because anything that can affect 
the consensus layer and can affect the, the node compatibility between all the participants in the network is something that should be taken very, very seriously and something that should be taken with a lot of prudence. And sometimes I see big blockers, especially perhaps downplaying the repercussions that we may have in the network. And I, for one, would like to, to avoid any kind of scenario we had with Ethereum. Now we have Ethereum Classic and Ethereum, let's say, Vitalik's Ethereum. So this is something we should try to avoid. But it is a very complex issue. And from all of my studies and research on, on cryptocurrencies and blockchain tech and trying to understand how, how we maintain consensus on a distributed system like Bitcoin is really, is really, really technical. And we do have economic repercussions, but it's not only economic repercussions. We also have technical repercussions that might lead into economic repercussions. And that's why everything is kind of related, because if you remove the limit and then you have a new dynamic uh, model where full nodes might receive bigger blocks and or blocks that might change sizes, and this can affect the relay, yes, the relay propagation of blocks and of transaction and of blocks. Also, the it might affect the total time that is necessary to validate a block. And this can affect the, the maintenance of consensus within Bitcoin, and it can even affect, in the end, the uh, Bitcoin's price in the market. So it all, it's all connected and it's difficult for us to only speak about the economic repercussions without having to analyze also the technical difficulties. And they have, there are some profound technical difficulties to analyze as well. So in the end, I have some, I would say I have some principles, I have some ideas and agreements with comrades, with you as well, as we have discussed uh, over WhatsApp or over the phone this matter for weeks now. But, for me, it's, it's still not a settled issue. I still have to analyze this further and try to understand all the repercussions on, on this matter. Okay, very good. Um, one thing, Fernando, if you could, could you just very, very simply, it's not an easy uh, thing to term, but can you very simply for our listeners, maybe new listeners, can you define the difference between soft fork and hard fork? Yeah, for sure. So hard forks are whenever you have a loosening of the rules, so let's say if you either eliminate the block size limit or if you raise the limit, you are loosening the rules. And this will, if, if you don't have a super majority, so let's say over 95% of the hash rate and, and full nodes as well, if you don't have a super majority, you will have a divergence in the blockchain. So the blockchain and the chain will be split. So this will be, and it will be a permanent split because the original chain will, not, will no longer see the divergent chain as valid. And the opposite is also true. So it will be a permanent divergence or a permanent fork in the blockchain. So this is a hard fork. And this is why hard forks should, in principle, always be avoided. Now, soft forks is the other way around, is when you have a more rigid rule. So you have a tightening of the rules. So instead of, let's say, a one megabyte block size limit, you might introduce a 500 kbytes 
limits. So this would be a tightening of the rules. And what this, do, what this does is after you have this new rule, a harder rule, even if the Reno chain doesn't adopt the new hard rule and you have a split on the blockchain, so you have now two divergent chains, one that recognizes only 500 kbytes blocks as valid, and the original one, which sees also one megabytes blocks as valid. So the original chain, we always look at the other chain, the, the fork, the forked blockchain, and we also validate those blocks and deem them as valid. But the other way is not the, is not correct. So the, the split blockchain will never see the original chain as valid or one megabyte as valid. So this might result in a temporary fork, but not permanent because you will have some reorganizations on both divergent chains whenever you have a majority of the hash power or you have a one of the chains will get longer as time goes by and then you surely have a reorganization and we only end up with one chain and not a forked chain so a soft a soft fork to summarize is a might result in a temporary split of the blockchain, but a hard fork is by definition a permanent divergence in the blockchain. All right, so thanks for that, Fernando. Um, just again to reiterate, obviously there's so much technical jargon, so much technical detail surrounding that, and uh, believe, believe us, the experts are, are working at it, uh, all the developers are working at it, and all the different camps and possibilities. We will try to lay it out, though, on this show uh, as simple as we can. It's a tough task, it's a tall order, but we will give it a shot and give our uh, economic and other perspectives on it. So to begin, Fernando, we have this thing then uh, in Bitcoin uh, called a BIP, Bitcoin Improvement Proposal. Can you explain briefly uh, what that is and then just move into uh, some of the significant BIPs and we have some significant dates coming up this summer. So we have BIP 9, BIP 141, BIP 148. Clear it all up for us. So whenever, whenever developers want to propose a change that might affect the consensus layer or the peer services or the APIs and applications on Bitcoin, they must submit a specific and standard document called BIP. And BIP stands for Bitcoin Improvement Proposal. So in this BIP, they delineate all the, the, the proposal, the changes being, being suggested and which of the layers it affects is only the consensus layer or peer services and some other specifications of the proposed change. So this is a, a BIP, a Bitcoin Improvement Proposal. And what we have right now going on is BIP 141, which is the Segregated Witness Improvement Proposal. And this is, it was actually on the scaling, the developers scaling roadmap for over a year. And it was introduced last year in November 2016 with a due date, November 2017. And what, I, what do I mean by saying a due date? Because the, the deployment method chosen by the developers for SegWit was the BIP9. And BIP9 specifies that whenever you propose a change, you need a 95% signaling threshold by the hash rate, so by the miners. And after each 2016 uh, week period, 2016 blocks, you have the recalculation. Approximately two weeks. 
approximately two weeks. Exactly. To verify if this 95% threshold has been achieved. If it has been achieved, SegWit will get activated after this threshold. So after this, this signing by the miners. But if this doesn't happen until November 2017, the whole activation it goes, let's say, goes down the drain. It will never, it will, it won't be activated by BIP 141, and the developers will have to reintroduce with another BIP and with another activation period. So this is what BIP 141 means with the deployment method as specified by BIP 9. So this is what we have at the moment, and currently we have over perhaps 65, sometimes even 70 percent of nodes running a BIP SegWit software ready. So we have over 65-70% of nodes re SegWit ready. So they are running all the software. All the software releases after 0.13.1 are SegWit ready in the network. However, we only have slightly over 40% of miners signaling their, uh, their yes to this change. So this is what this is the problem. So we still haven't reached or surpassed the 95% threshold. And the problem with the BIP9 deployment method is was that in reality, in practice actually, it gave a small minority of miners veto power. So you only need 5% or more of miners to not signal to BIP141 and SEGOT will not be activated. So this is, and this is now in retrospect, in hindsight, this is something that developers that propose SegWit are actually uh, admitting, acknowledging this was a mistake. So it shouldn't be, this deployment method shouldn't have been used with SegWit. But they say that since back then, when SegWit was being proposed, discussed, and debated within the community, within users, developers, engineers, and miners as well, Segwit was, let's say, there was no debate or it was not a contentious issue. Most miners, most users, developers, they were saying, well, I think Segwit is, is something beneficial, so we should adopt. If you propose this change, we will adopt this software. And this is why they, 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 didn't, force, they didn't foresee this that miners could, in the end, actually block SegWit from being activated at all. So this is the problem we have right now. And because of this veto power and because of this minor blockage, let's say, we have a new upgrade coming up, which is called UASF BIP148. So what BIP148 is trying to do is to force miners to start signaling yes to SegWit, so we have an activation. And the way to do this is after August 1st, every node that is running BIP 148 software will start orphaning blocks that don't signal BIP 148. So if you have a, a block by mined by a miner that's not signaling their accordance to SegWit, this block will be rejected by every node running BIP 148. So this is what they want to. This is how they are trying to force miners to finally signal and activate SegWit. So this is what we have right now on the on the agenda. Let's say August first. This is the deadline. Okay. So to to summarize that, the original SegWit, which uh, as you pointed out, has been 
active for more than a year uh, per the BIP schedule. They uh, that is November first when it is uh, expired or needs to have ninety five percent signaling from miners according to the old BIP nine. Uh, Correct. Original BIP nine, I should say. November fifteenth, uh, actually. Oh, sorry, November fifteenth. November fifteenth. And uh, then there is another sort of camp, or uh, perhaps similar camp, which would like to see SegWit activated uh, another way, and they are doing this user-activated soft fork, BIP 148, and that will start for all nodes that are signaling, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, just regardless, right? I mean, as long as uh, there is no uh, threshold to signal to start the UASF, or is there a threshold there uh, on no, August no, there's, 1st? Uh, on August 1st, after midnight, August 1st, nodes that run BIP148 software will reject any block that is not signaling BIT1, which is the SegWit yes signal. But okay. it's it, so it, we'll, interesting. Uh, Just one thing to, to clarify as well, because it's something that has come up uh, recently, and BIP148 has been dubbed UASF, so User Activated Software. This is what UASF stands for. But as a matter of fact, UASF as a method, as a deployment method of upgrades in the network has been the standard method since Bitcoin's inception. Actually, it was the only method used by Satoshi Nakamoto until he disappeared. It was only a user-activated software. But this changed sometime in 2012 with BIP34 and then with other BIPs and they changed the method the, the, there was one called ISM which is super majority which is basically the same as BIP9 and this required a minor threshold a minor signaling threshold to activate the change and the rationale behind this minor signaling is not really to give miners a veto power but instead to to even make, to activate earlier a change being proposed. So this was the rationale to, to enable miners to activate even earlier than a given flag day, as was the case before. So prior to, to all this drama with SegWit, updates were, would be proposed and they would be given a flag date, so a date of activation. Nodes would install the new software, install the new releases, and when this date arrived, the change would be activated. And if a miner was not, had not updated their software, their blocks would be invalidated by the whole network and would be rejected. That was the case before. So now we have this, the BIP9 was introduced with BIP141 SegWit, and it kind of changed the whole consensus dynamic and the method of maintaining consensus and doing upgrades in the network. Okay, great. So just to summarize, uh, from my side at least, you can correct me uh, if I'm wrong, but um, basically since inception, upgrading on the network was done uh, via soft fork and it was done by all of the nodes essentially agreeing by some sort of a majority consensus, basically just upgrading mm-hmm. and uh, the network would move to that. And nodes that did not uh, upgrade, um, they could still work as, as the nature of the soft fork. They could still work on uh, the network, but they would not be uh, sort of validating the way that the newly upgraded nodes uh, would. But then, uh, obviously, this uh, contentious uh, issue with SegWit and and with some of the things that it offers and or changes 
we have this sort of uh, counter signaling or uh, uh, basically an option for miners to, to, to throw their weight around perhaps more than was originally intended. And some core developers, as, as you said, have already, have already sort of admitted this, I think even mm-hmm. apologized in some way, shape or form to the, to the community. Not that yep. anyone need, needs to apologize, but that, that this minor signaling, uh, miners want one thing. It seems that the rest of the community or the economy, as they say sometimes, other users uh, perhaps want another. So we have this this disagreement. Okay, uh, so we have we have that. We have August first is basically the day that um, the community, the users, have said that they are going to uh, have nodes uh, running Segwit and any nodes or any uh, miners that are mining blocks that don't comply will be rejected by those nodes. So it's uh, definitely a, a big moment, a big sort of. Um, Big moment for the community to make a move towards SegWit. It is Before because we, just yeah. just to explain. So the consequence of August first, if we do have enough nodes running BIP one forty eight and blocks not signaling SegWit start getting rejected by the by the network, we might have a split in the blockchain. So we might have a chain split, and this might. Take some. It might be sustained for hours, days, and perhaps even weeks. We don't know, and so we have this danger on the horizon right now. Yeah, and I had a question to that. I think it's probably a good time to raise it. As far as I can tell, you know, the critique for years as this, uh, you know, as as transaction data was filling up in each block, filling up towards the one megabyte block size limit. Blocks were getting bigger each year. Mm-hmm. Um, th- this was always an issue in whether the block size would be raised, which was a hard fork, or this uh, other soft fork, uh, perhaps less uh, less of a, a, a technical risk to the network, was passed. Uh, one way or another, it needed to be solved because the congestion on the network was filling up. Um, it seemed to me that a critique for years, the quote unquote small blockers, as they're called, or the people that support SegWit would like to promote more off-chain transacting. They would precisely uh, claim to the, to the others that were proposing, well, let's just let's do nothing else, but let's raise the block size limit from one, one megabyte to two megabytes or so on and so forth. Of course, not all the proposals were as simple as that. XT, Bitcoin XT, Bitcoin Classic, different implementations. Then there was Bitcoin Unlimited, which was more complicated. But anyway, the the critique for years, as far as I can tell, was always raising the block size limit was was quite a risk to the network because you risked the possibility of a of a hard fork and possibly a chain split. And looking at uh, the UASF proposal now, uh, you know, I've listened to a lot of interviews, read a lot of things about it. Uh, certainly, there's no guarantee that there will be a split, um, but as I understand, it's certainly not uh, inevitable that everything will, will run smoothly. So why do you think the UASF proposal is, I don't know, more principled or better, or why is it better than just waiting on the old BIP-9 that is miners signaling 95% for an upgrade? What, is it possible that the UASF BIP-148, latest sort of community upgrade, is it possible that that could completely split the chain and miners would, some miners might just choose to not mine on that chain if they're rejected by some nodes and then we have a split anyway? Is there is there a possibility of a of a of a chain split with the UASF? Yes, this possibility is indeed real, and this might happen. So, uh, in in the end, and this is this is something we're gonna talk about in a few minutes. The let's say the counterattack 
the counter counter attack which is called segwit to x but just uh, let's for a moment keep us leave that aside yeah, yeah. Leave, leave that aside and, and just analyze b.48 so the chain split is a real danger is a real possibility for how long we can have a chain split is the difficult part to to foresee and, and to kind of uh, forecast because we do have if there is a majority of hash rates it will go one say one way or the other so as time goes by a chain split caused by a soft fork tends to be resolved and one of the chains will be wiped out so we will have a reorganization as time goes by as one chain is being more extended or becomes longer than the other so this is the theoretical scenario that chain split resulted by from soft forks. They tend to be resolved one way or the other as time goes by. This is an argument. But since this is the first time we have, I think we have something like this, it might take more than a few hours. It might take even some days. And that is why many, most technical and experts in this field, they are recommending people do not transact soon after August 1st and wait until things get a little bit clearer what happens if the chain if do if indeed we have a chain split or not so this is something we have to monitor until close to August 1st to see what's going to happen right now we can mostly speculate what all these scenarios and outcomes might be Okay, but just to be uh, more precise, at least from my uh, curious perspective, as I understand, uh, it, it could go on, as you say, hours, weeks, or whatever, but you tend to uh, agree, I guess, with, uh, or is it true that the developer consensus is just that since it's a soft fork and since it is uh, the users or the nodes that are just basically, they're, they're going to move on uh, regardless of whether we have, obviously, the BIP9 miners signaling 95% or not. Is it, is it still, like, in your opinion or from what you've read, is it mostly uh, assumed that the split will not be permanent since it's a f soft fork? Or is there a possibility that it could completely split and never get together? And, and that's you know the same Ethereum, Ethereum classic moment where you have a, essentially just two different... Uh, branches from a chain from from August 1st say is it possible that it never gets back together with it the is, soft fork it is proposal? it is possible it is possible uh, though the dynamics and the incentives i think they make a permanent chain split in bitcoin less likely than in ethereum but this is something i cannot elaborate further because i also need to to investigate this claim further Okay, let's leave, let's leave it there then. Uh, mm -hmm. As we as we knew it, it, it gets complicated the more you look into it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So the as next, I told you, man, it, it, it's a quicksand <laughs> debate. <laughs> <laughs> I, I completely we, agree. We've been sucked in already. <laughs> yep, yep, we have. Let's so, not um, <laughs> We will try. Let's get back to this second sort of alternative, which came at Consensus 2017. Uh, I guess it was two months ago or so. Uh, there is there is now another uh, implementation, or that's right. called the New York New York Agreement, or Segwit 2x. This is meant to be some sort of a compromise, but as I understand, it's it's not a BIP. It's not a traditional Bitcoin improvement proposal, mm, uh, as I understand. 
So what, uh, what could you tell us, Fernando, what is uh, SegWit2x and why uh, was it proposed? Mm-hmm. So just one thing, something I, I didn't answer from your question. Uh, I, th- I regard BIP148 as a more principled approach than SegWit2x. And it will just become clear why in a few seconds, in a few minutes. But just respond to your, it's not that BIP148 is more principled than SegWit141 itself, but I think it's more principled than the other hard forks proposal we have on the horizon, such as SegWit2x. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is, so SegWit2x is the result of the New York agreement. So back in Consensus 2017, the conference that took place, I think it was late May, 23rd of May actually, the, there was an agreement signed by over 80% of hash rates, so many, most of miners, a lot of the economy in Bitcoin, so merchants, uh, wallets, exchanges, uh, what else, some influential users like Barry Silbert right. himself, which was, which was, let's say, the host of this meeting and the host of the agreement, but none of the core developers. So every core developer, they refused to sign an agreement. They even, they were invited to participate in the meeting, but since it was kind of already an arranged, not an arranged meeting, but the, but the meeting was just a, a formality because the agreement was already kind of laid out for them. So they would just be there and sign and they refused to sign any such agreement. And what this agreement says is, they approve or they, they have a compromise that they will activate SegWit immediately. And the second point was to have an increase in the block size limit to two megabytes six months after SegWit activation. So that's the two main points or the, the two main takeaways of the New York agreement. And who is behind, technically, who is behind the New York agreement? So the lead developer, let's say the lead maintainer for SegWit2x, this is how it's being dubbed, the New York agreement now is, is SegWit2x or SegWit2megabytes, is Jeff Garzik, who, who's been a, a core developer, but it, it's been, he's been kind of inactive for quite some time, but he's now the lead developer for SegWit2x. And they've completely copied Bitcoin Core repository on GitHub, and now it's called BTC1. That's the GitHub repository for the SegWit2x. And they've already released a new code, a new alpha release, where it's been tested. And the sad part for me, and now it's my answer why I think it's less principled than BIP148, is not because they're signing SegWit. SegWit, I think it is a, a good improvement on the network. But the sad part is because they are linking or making conditional not only SegWit but also the hard fork increasing to two megabytes. And the saddest part is we now have Luke Dash Jr., a core developer, he reviewed the code yesterday and he released a comment on the alpha release by Jeff Garzik. And it was kind of surprising to see now the hard fork is not only a two megabyte increase, but it's also, it's actually a bump of eight megabytes. But they're kind of obfuscating this, the actual change to eight megabytes with some uh, code there to make it appear it is only two megabytes, but it's actually a eight megabytes hard coded block size limit, a new limit being proposed. 
So th this is why, uh, because it's less principled in my opinion, is because it will by definition cause a hard fork after SegWit activates, it will by definition cause a hard fork to increase the block size limit to eight megabytes. And it can be quite disruptive. And because it can be, it can disrupt the network, it can cause some damage in the consensus layer if we don't have a majority. And because it just, uh, this solution is not a definitive solution. It just kicks the can down the road. And whenever I think about the block size limit, if we should or not increase, if let's say the community and the developers and the engineers, they do decide and they, they conclude, okay, so we do have to increase the block size limit. But we cannot keep increasing by hard forks every year or every two years or every five years. If we do this, and I'm, this, is my, this is my assumption, if we do have to increase the block size limit, we should do only one hard fork and have it change in such a way that the increase can happen dynamic, dynamically as the network increases, as the usage and the demand for block space increases but not in such a way that we don't kick the can down the road, we increase now eight megabytes and a year from now we see, okay, now we have to increase once again, another hard fork, another risk of affecting the consensus layer and the compatibility of all the nodes. I would oppose to that. I would prefer we, let's wait a little bit longer, three or six months, I mean, this cannot change. Bitcoin is something so revolutionary and that can really change the road, the world, we, we can afford another six months to have a more robust and without having to endanger the consensus of this phenomenal technology. Okay, uh, let, let me ask you one more question on that. And I think uh, it's a very good explanation what you gave. Um, but some might say just looking at this, uh, you know, okay, there's all these different proposals. Uh, some may say SegWit2x is sort of rushed or maybe not completely honest, as you say, if it would eventually get to eight mm -hmm. megabytes or at least a limit up to eight megabytes instead of two megabytes. Um, and of course, it has the risk of a hard fork and a direct split, as you, uh, as you pointed out. But let's say, okay, SegWit2x, maybe that's uh, not, not, say, principled enough. Let's say that that's not uh, risk averse enough. But still, going back to you know uh, the UASF BIP one forty eight uh, versus the old the the traditional uh, SegWit BIP one forty one in combination with BIP nine, which as you mentioned was the minor signaling timeout uh, mm -hmm. for upgrades. Uh, why do you think people are so uh, just sort of ready and just want the UASF to go? Why, if if BIP one forty one expires in uh, November fifteenth? Why wouldn't people just be ready to, to wait and try to do something that might have a more broad consensus with the miners? This is, uh, your opinion is actually exactly what Greg Maxwell, another core developer, uh, thinks of BIP 148. He thinks also right. it's a rushed upgrade and contentious by nature, let's say. And he would rather wait BIP 148 to time out. And if SegWit is not activated until November, we reintroduce SegWit on another BIP with another due date, but this time with BIP 8, which is a modification of BIP 9. So miners can still activate earlier whenever they want, but on the due date, the change doesn't just uh, doesn't end 
that on the due date, the opposite occurs, the opposite of BIP night. So BIP8 on the due date activates automatically. So if miners do not activate before the due date, whenever this, uh, this date comes, the change gets automatically activated. So Gregor Maxwell would rather see this solution than a BIP148, which is a forced UASF, I would say, because the BIP148 is a UASF to force a minor activated software. So UASF forcing a MASF, MASF a minor activated software. And he would rather not go down this route, but some other developers, they think we, since we have over 70% in some calculations, over 80% of full nodes running SegWit ready software, there's no reason not to activate at all. There's not, I mean, there's no reason not to activate right now. So this is why they're choosing BIP148 UASF. And also because of the competing now, the competing code, uh, which is SegWit2x. Okay, I think that's a good answer and we're getting long here, so uh, we'll start to wrap it up. But uh, to, to maybe uh, ease, it, ease it out for our listeners, we've, we've talked about a lot of dates and some very uh, technical factors of these different BIP uh, upgrades. But let's, uh, let's sort of take a more broad view of, of what's happening. So we have this, this Bitcoin economy. We have, we have miners, we have nodes, we have developers, we have wallet users, we have merchants, we have investors. There's much overlap. We have companies as well, as well involved in Bitcoin. There's much overlap among those, those subsets. But it, it really does seem to beg the question because Bitcoin just does not really have an answer here. And I'd like to get your thought. You know, in this context, it, it seems that the miners are in opposition to, say, the core developers and perhaps, perhaps even the majority of the nodes, as you say. So clearly we have some contention and it's around uh, scaling the network, it's around the one megabyte limit, and it's around scaling off chain. But I just want to ask you just generally then, you know, in this context, who is the ultimate arbiter of, of tilting the playing field for Bitcoin transacting. You know, I mean, we have, in its essence, this is an on-chain versus off-chain scaling debate. Some people are trying to say that it's both. You know, SegWit2x is trying to say that it's both. We need on-chain and off-chain. You know, minor fees get involved in everything else. But, but who, in your opinion, Fernando, is the ultimate arbiter of, of tilting the playing field, of, of sort of moving, kicking the ball down the field, of, of, of moving uh, the game forward in Bitcoin. Who, who is the ultimate arbiter in deciding that? Well, if I knew this, I would sell my house right now and put everything into Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the fact of, of the matter is we're all in this together. It's uh, full nodes, it's all users, wallets, uh, merchants, developers, and also miners. Uh, Bitcoin's game theory is what really fascinates me because trying to understand how, how every participant or what is the role of every participant is the really fascinating but also difficult part. What I'd say now is that full nodes, or, or let me just step back a little. First of all, miners in this recent debate, miners have been given a disproportionate importance in the network. 
to the point that even experts, they have now, it seems that they are judging miners to be the final arbiter as answering your question. So many people think, well, if miners control hash rates and they mine blocks and they add new blocks and extend the blockchain, miners are actually the one that control the network. And this is not true. And I guess the role played by full nodes now is getting more, it's getting more visible and the importance of full nodes in the consensus of the network is getting, is being recognized as being also very, very important. It's not only the miners, but in the end, I wouldn't say it's either one or the other. I think everyone is in it together. And this is what makes it so difficult and fascinating at the same time. I don't think full nodes have the only say in, in the matter as miners don't either. So, but it's important to understand how, what is the role of everyone, core developers, miners, full nodes, wallets, services, exchanges, and, and everyone who has a stake in the system. All right. So I'm sorry. That... I'm sorry not to answer your question. <laughs> we don't have one final arbiter. It's and that's and that's why and that's why consensus is such a difficult thing and such an, an, an essential part of Bitcoin. How to maintain consensus with all the, the the parties, miners, full nodes, users, exchanges, wallets, developers, everyone. It is really intricate. I completely agree with you there. I couldn't agree more. And you know, Bitcoin was the first true digital asset uh, that was uh, completely distributed. And it's just, it's an ongoing experiment. And it's, it's scary that it's about money. Um, <laughs> yeah. But we will see. You know, I, I've, I've said it, yeah, I've said it for a long time. I, I do think this issue will be solved. Uh, I think the economic uh, factors are just too important for uh, most of the players to just destroy it all. Like, I don't, I don't think that the Bitcoin experiment will go flipping into flames anytime soon, even with these very significant dates. Uh, coming up, but it doesn't uh, certainly doesn't mean that there's not a lot of fireworks, not a lot of activity, uh, interesting tweets, interesting uh, debates from a macroeconomic side. Uh, it's hard to not think that in some way, shape or form, uh, this this issue will be solved. So so we will see to be continued. All right. So that will do it for today. We will be uh, back next week. We're just going to continue this uh, in a bit more focused context, I think in a bit uh, more uh, our, our opinions on the economic nature of this and also some security and centralization issues that come up. So all of these are certainly important topics and uh, we'll, try to, we'll try to break it down for you. So thanks everyone for listening. Much appreciated and uh, talk to you soon. Thanks, Fernando. Thank you, Matthew. See you next time.